Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Jesus. It's your goodness that draws us to repentance. Thank you for your goodness, Jesus. Thank you for your mercy, for your grace. We magnify you, Jesus. Praise the Lord, everybody. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord this Wednesday night. It's good to be back in the house of the Lord. Amen. Feels like we've missed a few Wednesdays. And, uh, we're, we're back in the house of the Lord where we, where we need to be. Amen. Tonight we are looking at our 26th lesson in the book of Revelation. We're going to jump right in uh, after we pray over this. Would you pray with me, Jesus? Lord, we thank you for one more opportunity in your house to hear from your word. Lord, help me to teach in a way that you can anoint tonight. Help me to say something worth saying to these precious people. Let the seed of your word fall on good ground tonight. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As I said, we are in our 26th lesson of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, just a few more chapters left. In uh, 1861, Julia Ward Howe penned a hymn that became a rallying cry uh, for many faithful men and women ever since. It has led men into battle It's led Christians into spiritual battles. It's the battle hymn of the Republic. Many don't know, however, that some of these words that are a part of the battle hymn of the Republic was taken directly from the book of Revelation and is actually inspired by what we see happening in Revelation chapter 14, especially the second half. Listen to these words. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful, fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. She got that directly from what we're going to be studying tonight. She went on to say, He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. And I love that line. He is sifting out the hearts of men before His judgment seat. 
Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Sobering. It's, it's sobering whenever you understand exactly where she drew the inspiration for that song. It's sobering because on it's really a double-edged sword, just like this entire uh, chapter is. It's a call to arms, if you will, to believers. Advance the gospel. Advance the kingdom. But it's also a warning to unbelievers. Judgment is coming quickly. Judgment is coming quickly. That's what we see. That's what we're looking at tonight. You could call what we're going to study tonight a passage of judgment. Now, there are many that would have us sugarcoat passages like this, explain them away, ignore them altogether. But tonight, as a preacher of the Word, and also you as saints of God, it is not our job to apologize for the Word of God. It's not my job to explain it away, to try to make it sound better than what it actually is, to try to lessen the blow, if you will. My job, your job, is to believe it, teach it, preach it. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at some very serious passages in the Word of the Lord. What you'll notice is uh, tonight, Jesus' imminent return. I don't know, and I, and I say this uh, a lot when the topic comes up, I don't know when He's, and I truly don't, there are many that would like to put a date on the coming of the Lord. Uh, many have tried, many have failed. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I can't tell you that. It could be tonight. It could be before this lesson is over. It could also be a hundred years from now. And whenever I say that, that truth also makes some people uncomfortable. But it's true. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. But here's what I do know for sure. I do know that Jesus is coming back. I do know that His return is the next event on the prophetic timetable. I like how Chuck Swindoll put it. He said, The hour is fast approaching when Jesus Christ will return from heaven with power and glory. All the misconceptions about who Jesus was and is will be dispelled at that time. And the whole world will stand face to face with the one true Christ. I love that. And it's so true. When Jesus comes back, all of the false information about Him is going to dry up and go away. There will only be the truth of who He is, the truth that's found in uh, the Word of the Lord. And when He does come back, He is coming back in judgment. He's coming back in judgment. Let's look at, and I didn't put it on the PowerPoint tonight, uh, there are going to be a, several verses that I quote <coughs> that is not uh, from the book of Revelation that I didn't put on the PowerPoint, but you can write them down as we go along, uh, just to save for time. Isaiah 13, 11 through 14, this is directly talking about the judgment that's going to hit the world at the end. It says, I will punish the world for their evil 
and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. And it shall be as the chaste roe and as a sheep that no man taketh up, they shall every man turn to his own people and flee every one into his own land. Again, judgment is prophesied in chapter 24 of Isaiah, chapter 24, verses 21 through 23. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison. And after many days they shall be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. So judgment, contrary to what some would have us believe in 2022, is a recurring theme throughout the word of the Lord. Judgment was prophesied by John the Baptist, it's prophesied by Jesus, prophesied by Paul, prophesied again by John the Revelator. And when Jesus comes back, all of those that prophesied of judgment in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, they're going to be vindicated. And that day is going to come uh, upon the world. The last lesson that we taught before our hiatus, we studied the first part of chapter 14. Jesus saw the, uh, or John rather, saw Jesus gather the remnant of Israel together We saw that the eternal gospel was going to be preached by an angel. We witnessed Babylon falling. And then there was a warning there right at the end of that passage that we studied. A warning for unbelievers and a promise for tribulation saints that judgment was coming. The rest of chapter 14, what we're going to study tonight, uh, gives us a preview of the seven bowl judgments that are going to be found in the rest of the book of Revelation. And it's going to give us a preview, a look ahead at Armageddon. So let's dive right into the word of the Lord here. Verses 14 through 16. And I looked, and this is John, and behold a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Sobering. It's a sobering passage that we're looking at. First thing we notice is this cloud that the Son of Man comes riding in on. This language that is used here by John 
John would be familiar with what he was seeing because he would be familiar with Daniel 7, which is almost, almost exactly the same imagery. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So the imagery that Paul or that John sees rather, this this cloud that comes moving in is one that would be familiar uh, to his audience. The cloud that he's riding on is symbolic of his glory and his majesty. The cloud, if you if you're familiar with scripture, it represents divine presence uh, frequently throughout scripture. Several times in the Old Testament, you've got the cloud uh, that speaks to the, the Lord speaks from the cloud rather, to the children of Israel. You've got the glory cloud that would rest over the tabernacle. In Exodus, the children of Israel are led by a cloud during the day. So this imagery is used several times, and it's also used several times in the New Testament as well. At Jesus' baptism, there was a cloud, and the voice speaks from the cloud. Then when Jesus ascends into heaven, a cloud receives him into heaven. When he comes back, it is, it is no coincidence that he'll be coming back on a cloud, riding back on a cloud. The next thing that we notice is the use of the term the Son of Man. This title, as we just read, also comes from Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel saw one like as unto the Son of Man, riding on a cloud, coming to the Ancient of Days. John sees one like as of the Son of Man, riding on a cloud. It's interesting about this phrase, it was Jesus' favorite way to refer to Himself. You read the Gospels, you study the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man countless uh, times. In the Old Testament, the phrase, the Son of Man, it's used to refer uh, to the one that's going to come as Messiah. Here in Revelation, it refers to, obviously, Jesus. Jesus is the one it's speaking about. And it's referring to him as the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy regarding the Messiah and the day of judgment. It's what John sees when he sees Jesus, uh, one like as of the Son of Man. Next thing we notice is the crown that's on his head. And a crown, crowns have been significant in the book of Revelation. There's two crowns that are of significance. Um, the same, there are two different Greek words that are used for crown. The one is Stephanos. And the other is diadem. A diadem is a crown that a king wears. It's a it's one of royalty. Only kings and rulers wear diadems. The other crown is a victor's crown, Stephanus. Victors, conquerors wear those crowns. It's reminiscent of the Olympic Games when a wreath would be put upon the winner. He'd have a Stephanus, a crown of victory, put on his head. Here, 
the Son of Man, Jesus, is wearing a Stephanus. As opposed to other times when we've seen him and he's been wearing a diadem. Now, Jesus will very soon wear the diadem as we get further into the book of Revelation. But right here, it is significant that he wears the Stephanus, the victor's crown. And here's why it's significant. Jesus is not yet coming as ruler. He's coming as victor. And he's coming to conquer. He's coming to destroy those that are his enemies. And tonight as we study, we will see that come to fruition, uh, at least the beginning portions of that. Jesus coming as conqueror to the earth, riding on a cloud. The next thing we see in his hand, and it's significant because of what I just said, him coming as conqueror, he's coming with a sickle in his hand. What is a sickle? It's a uh, long, curved, razor-sharp blade. Used to be used for harvesting. Anyone know what a sickle is? Everyone's seen a sickle. Papal may have used a sickle. I don't know. <laughs> Popsicle. There are those kind of sickles as well. Amen. This right here is a gentleman using a longer version of a sickle. And he's harvesting wheat. This is the imagery that, obviously it wouldn't be this man, this man is more modern. But the imagery of a farmer harvesting wheat is what would come to mind to the uh, reader of the book of Revelation when, it's, when it was first written. Verse 17, it says, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the... Uh, well, we'll start right there in, in verse 17. So this is the imagery. We look at the Word of God. It's talking about reaping and harvesting We've got someone who painted this depiction here. This would be Jesus. And I just want you to know, and if I can paint the picture for you tonight, um, there, there's no more of a sobering picture or thought of Jesus in all of the Bible. When you think of Jesus, you think of modern depictions of Jesus, right? You think of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, kind of a hippie-looking dude. Um, maybe he's crossed, got his legs crossed, got his hands done like he's in some kind of a pose, like he's meditating or something, or he's smiling, very soft. Uh, that, that's not Jesus. So I want you to know, if you've ever seen a picture of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, you haven't seen Jesus. Jesus was a carpenter. He was not a soft man at all. If you shook his hands, you'd, sh you'd shake a hand that had calluses. Uh, he's very different than what we, the picture that we have of him. But even if we had an accurate picture of him, a Jewish man, a man that was rough, that was a carpenter, uh, that lived a, a rough life, still our thoughts of Jesus would focus on him smiling and being kind and drawing people in. And uh, that would be our picture of Jesus and, and who Jesus is, the loving Savior. And Jesus is the loving Savior. 
That's not a completely inaccurate picture of Jesus. The problem is, is our idea of Jesus is often lopsided. We only take that side of Jesus. But when, and this is why it's so important that you have a systematic theology, that you study the whole Bible, and you take everything into perspective, and not just one portion of who Jesus is, because this is also Jesus. And when Jesus comes back at this time, He's not coming back as the smiling, loving Savior that's there to herd the the sheep and, and put everybody under His arms. When Jesus comes back this time, the second time, He's coming back in judgment, absolute judgment. The imagery here, and let's, let's, read, let's read it out of the Word of God. It says, and another angel, verse 15, this is the verse that I skipped earlier. Verse 15, and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So the imagery here, Jesus riding in on a cloud, Jesus stepping down, and Jesus sifting his enemies like a farmer would sift wheat. That's not soft. But that is Jesus. That's the other side of Jesus that we, we don't talk about, but that we have an obligation to address. That there is this side of Jesus, and Jesus, when He comes back the second time, this is how He's coming back. He's coming back to sift the wickedness and the wicked. Harvest them like a harvester harvests grain. Jesus then, or John then, sees an angel come out of the temple and shout, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And you have to notice, this is not a command. Because angels can't command Jesus. This is more of an excited pronouncement that the, the hour has come. The time is at hand. Jesus, the hour for what you have been waiting to do is now here. There can be no more delay. Evil has reached its limit. The time of grace is over. Jesus will then pour out His wrath upon the earth. And it is that serious. When this day comes, there is no second chance. That's when everything reaches its climactic point and Jesus comes back to take the world back into His hands. The word that's used here for ripe, it means dried or withered. So the condition of the world had become overripe or dried or withered by sin. It was literally the time for reaping. And this also, lest we get lest we go overboard uh, thinking of God as a, as a God of judgment, and He is a God of judgment, you have to understand, even in this language, the fact that the, the harvest was ripe, that it was dried and it was withering, and it was, it was beyond time to, to sift the wheat. Even in that imagery, we see the grace and the mercy of God. You say, how do we see 
the grace and the mercy of God and the imagery of Jesus coming back and sifting the wicked, cutting them down, cutting down his enemies. We see it in the fact that Jesus waits until the very last minute. He waits until it cannot be, he cannot waste any longer morally and be a just God. He can no longer wait. It's time the, the sin of the world has reached its climactic point. It's time. And that's when Jesus steps on the scene with the sickle in his hand. And Jesus goes to work. It's a sobering thing to think about. The sobering moment. And what comes next is, is possibly even more sobering. The previous... That talks about the swiftness, right? It's going to happen quickly. Here we have a preview, if you will, of Armageddon, that final battle that's going to hit the earth. Verse 17 says, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle. Gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Remember the language from the battle hymn of the, of the Republic. And the wine press was trodden without the city. And look at this. And blood came out of the wine press even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. About 185 miles. 183, 185 miles. The imagery, again, that, that language there of a wine press would be would be very familiar. You've got two angels. One comes out of the temple holding a sickle. The other comes out from the altar. The one that comes from the altar tells the other one, go and gather the grapes because they are ripe. And this word ripe is different than the previous word ripe in the original language. It means at the prime. So it's different, but it's the same in essence. It means it, it's, it's, it's time for a harvesting. It's reached its climactic point. The grape is at its prime, uh, prime stage of growth. So what does he mean by this? The sin of the world is at its highest point at this, at this stage of the world. You go back in verses nine and ten and, uh, of, of this same chapter and the angels uh, they say that who, whosoever takes the mark and worships the beast will drink the wine of God's wrath. This is what's being talked about. They were talking about this moment that is going to come. So the angel then gathers the grapes according to the imagery, again, that John is, is seeing. And like I said previously, this, this imagery is going to be easily identifiable to the original audience. Very familiar imagery. Like this picture that we have here. The grapes are tossed into the top area. 
and they're stomped on, and you can see as the juice would flow to that lower area. Literally a crushing or a treading out of the grapes. Verse 20, And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even under the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So many people, uh, they debate and they argue about whether or not this is, uh, can be taken, taken literally, this language that's here. It's very familiar language. How many's heard that, about the, the blood that's going to run to the, as high as the horse's bridle? Very familiar language. 185 miles. That would be four foot of blood, at least, to reach the horse's bridle. 185 miles. That's why people differ as to whether or not this should be taken literally. Now, it is true that during this battle, there's going to be millions and millions of people that are fighting in this battle and dying in this battle. That being said, I'm one of those, I don't, I don't see this as necessarily being completely literal. It's literal in the sense that it goes along with the imagery of the wine press. So you could say as they stomp the, the, as the blood is being stomped out, the life is being stomped out, that it would splatter as high as the horse's bridle. I have no problem with you taking a literal view, but I'm, I'm just saying that most likely, that that's what Scripture is talking about here. It's, he, he's using the imagery that he has already stated before of the, of the wine press when he's talking about the blood running as high as the horse's uh, bridle there. Regardless, we know that this is going to be devastating. Devastating for the world at the time. Armageddon. The wrath of God being poured out. Now think about 185 miles worth of blood. Even if it doesn't flow four foot high for 185 miles, let's just say that blood is splattered all over the place up to four foot high for 185 miles. Can you imagine the devastation? The level, the world has never seen anything like that. And it won't until that day. There's similar, two similar prophecies that are in the Old Testament that we'll look at that gives us kind of the full picture of what's going to happen. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6 says this, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury. This is Jesus. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help. 
and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Also look at Joel chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. This imagery that we're seeing here, again, this is the side of God that we want to ignore, that we want to act like doesn't exist. But we've got an obligation and I, I am not one that believes that we ought to serve God out of fear. I believe that we ought to fear God uh, in the term that Proverbs uses. And what that is, is that's respect for God. That's fear of living your life outside of the rule of God. That's respect for God. And, 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 and I think that's godly fear. So I am not trying to get us to be afraid uh, in that sense, and I don't think that fear is a great uh, motivator. It's not a great keeper of people. So you can't, you can't literally scare people into living for God. Eventually, that'll run out. That won't last. But even though that may be true, and it is true, I believe, we cannot ignore this side of Jesus. We cannot ignore the fact that judgment is coming that judgment will hit the earth. And that when Jesus comes back the second time, our and that's why I like what Swindoll said, our misconceptions of Jesus are going to be put right because when Jesus comes back that second time, He's coming back and He's coming back to do judgment on the earth, not bring mercy. He came the first time to, to, to plant seed. He came the first time to get a harvest of people, a church for himself, a people for himself. He came the first time in love and mercy and grace. That's why he came. He came literally to die, to die for the sins of all humanity. He's not willing that any should perish. But when he comes this second time, our idea of Jesus had better be right. Because Jesus is not coming back to play games. He's not coming back in grace and He's not coming back in mercy. He's coming back in judgment. And that ought to, people say, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to close with this, how can, you, how can you make the book of Revelation applicable? Make it applicable for our lives because obviously we're not living some of this stuff yet. And hopefully the church is going to be raptured out of there. I believe that. But how do you make it applicable? This is how judgment is coming. It's real. It's real and it's coming. There's no stopping it. You can't stop the judgment of God that's on its way. You can pray for people and you can pray for the lost and you can pray for yourself and get right with God and I hope that you're not living for God out of fear. I hope you're living for God because you love Him. And you want to serve Him. And I hope that what we study ought to drive us to our knees for a loved one, for someone else in our life that doesn't know Jesus because this is the future. And judgment is coming and there's, and there's no way of talking yourself out of this.
I can remember uh, growing up, I'd get in trouble. A spanking would be coming my way. I would do everything possible. I will talk and we will debate about it and we will, we will argue all the tenets of whether this was right or wrong. I don't remember winning a single battle. I don't think I, I don't think it worked a single time. But every time I would do my very best. We need to talk about the legalities of what is happening right now. Amen. There's no talking our way out of this. It's coming. Judgment is coming. And there's no way, like, you can look in the Word of God and you can say, well, you know, that doesn't sound pleasant, so let's go ahead and let's, let's whitewash this and let's act like that doesn't... Maybe we should just inv- avoid the book of Revelation altogether because there's, there's, there's language in it that's scary and there's language in it that's harsh and doesn't sound right. You're not stopping it from coming. We can throw the entire chapter out. We can throw the entire book away. But we're not stopping the judgment from coming. That's the first application. When you read the book of Revelation, you ought to, there ought to be a sobering sense that would come upon you that says Jesus is coming back. And judgment is coming when He comes. Jesus is coming back, and this is, this is news, Jesus is coming back is only good for believers. The only thing, the only reason it's positive is for believers. If you're surrendered to Jesus, if you're living for Him, if you're bowing before Him now and He's Lord of all, then when we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray that He would come soon and establish His kingdom. But if you're an unbeliever, not a positive thing. That's why it's hard. It's hard for people. You know, there are people that come to church, and, and, and I, I don't believe that we have those kind of people in New Life Tabernacle. But there's people that come to church and, and Brother Chad, they're backslidden on a pew. And they sit in church Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, never making any progress in God, but they're checking it off on their list of things to do throughout the week. Judgment is coming. This is why it's important. You say, why, why teach the book of Revelation? Why, why not just focus on faith and praise every Sunday and every Wednesday and encourage people? Why? Because judgment's coming. Because we can sit here and we can act like it's not coming and we can sit here and preach faith and praise week in and week out and encourage people and encourage the lost on our pews never to go anywhere in God. We can do that, but we can't stop judgment from coming. All you've done is you've made them feel good on their way to hell. And it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable to me and it shouldn't be acceptable to the body of Christ. That's why we study this. Because it's real. We believe it's real and we believe that it's coming. The next thing that we, the, the next application point, and this is also serious, we're not there yet. So judgment is coming, but we have time. We don't know how much time we have, but your lost loved one, you need to be praying for them and you need to be reaching for them. And your lost friends, you need to be reaching for them and praying for them. I've got lost loved ones, I've got lost cousins, that I literally, this is how I pray, Jesus, whatever you've got to do, Don't let them be lost. Whatever you've got to do. I know judgment's coming, and I know we're not there yet. And as long as there's time, I'm not going to stop believing, and I'm not going to stop reaching. 
And I believe that in this church, that as we begin to grow and we get into that new building, I just believe that we're going to see a revival of prodigals, of people that are lost, that used to be a part of this church, that are no longer a part of this church. Why? Because we're not there yet. And as long as Jesus has not come back yet, as long as his church is still on this earth, until Jesus comes back riding on his cloud, we are going to be reaching for people, loving people, reaching people, trying to pull them out of darkness and preaching to people. Why? Because judgment is real, but he isn't here yet. There's still time and we've still got work to do. I wonder if we could stand. I know tonight was sobering, and, and this is part of the book of Revelation. And every week it's going to get a little bit more sobering till we get to the millennial reign of Christ. And I'm looking forward to that day. But I'm thankful for the book of Revelation because it's a reminder. Stay focused. Stay committed. Don't quit. Don't give up. We ought to be deepening our love for Him. Again, not out of fear. We didn't teach this night to make the people of God afraid. We want the people that are not believing, the people that are in the world, they need to be afraid because judgment's coming. And they need to get right. And then when you're right, when you're living for God, you've got no reason to be afraid. Why? Because Jesus is coming back for you. He's going to pull us out of here. And I'm thankful for it. But I'm thankful for the book of Revelation because it's sobering. Kind of puts everything in perspective. We've got a job to do. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. That's why the church is here. We're the body of Christ today. We're reaching for people. You ought to pray for opportunities. I'm not telling you to go beat down people's doors. It's not what I'm telling you to do. I'm not telling you to, to you know, it'd be good to pass out cards. But I'm not, I'm not telling you to pass out cards or anything like that. But here's what I'm saying. If you've got a friend in need... Someone comes to you and they're in need. They'll know where to go. How about pointing them to Jesus? Don't just comfort them. Comfort them. But point them to Jesus. When you see people in the store. Brother Dylan was telling me of a situation a while back. Met someone in a gas station going through a really hard time. Point them to Jesus. Those are God moments. That's how we grow a church. How do we grow a church? Did you know that 95% of Christians say that they trace back, they're getting involved in the church back to a friend? That's a full, that's a, that's a big number. 95%. Friends. Let's think about that. Who are some friends that we could reach for? Why? Because judgment's coming. Who are some friends that we could pray for? Some loved ones that we can pray for and reach for? I wonder if tonight, could we find a place to pray? You can come to the front. You can pray where you're at. Could we find a place to pray? And I wonder if we could just spend tonight praying for lost loved ones, lost friends. Let's get somebody in our mind, somebody, and I know every one of us knows somebody, somebody that needs Jesus. And just begin to pray. It's the goodness of God that leads them to repentance. God, whatever you've got to do, don't let them be lost. Whatever you've got to do, 